And if you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. In the Church Bible, that's page 1103. Acts chapter 10. Several times as we've been looking at Acts, we've been reminded of the mission that Jesus gave his disciples. Back in chapter 1, just before he returned to heaven, he said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Wider and wider rings of witness. And between chapters 2 and 7, we saw the church witnessing in Jerusalem. But we saw them making no progress beyond Jerusalem. That progress only came when God stepped in to shove the church out of Jerusalem. He did that by allowing a great persecution to break out against the church there. That caused the believers to spill out to Judea and Samaria. God took the initiative to move the mission forward. And this morning we're going to see God taking the initiative again. He's going to teach the church what he means by the ends of the earth. He means all peoples on earth. Not just the Jewish people. Not just those who have converted to Judaism. Not just those who are fairly similar to the Jews. Just as God moved the church beyond Jerusalem, now he's going to move their understanding. He's going to move them beyond the idea that the good news is just for people like us. He's going to show them that it's for all people, including those who are very, very different from us. Our passage this morning is about the width of God's mercy. And it divides into four sections, almost like a play in four acts. In chapter 10, verses 1 to 8, God responds to a sincere seeker. At the end of chapter 9, we left Peter staying in a place called Joppa. Now chapter 10 begins in Caesarea, which is about 30 miles from Joppa. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius? Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Cornelius is an officer in the Roman army. Remember, the Romans are the occupying power in Israel at this time. And Cornelius is a centurion. That means he commanded a unit of 100 soldiers. 
So he's a man of some status. He has a certain amount of rank and importance. And as a Roman soldier, he is obviously a Gentile, a non-Jew. But verse 2 tells us something else about him. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. It's important to grasp what this verse is saying and what it is not saying. Verse 2 is telling us Cornelius is a religious man. He has some knowledge of the God of Israel. And he's sincerely seeking after God. His religion isn't just a show or a label. It's not something he holds to half-heartedly so that he can get votes or get promoted. At this point in time, when you're an officer in the Roman army, there are no votes or promotions to be gained by pursuing Israel's God. Cornelius and his family have a genuine respect for God. And he shows that by his generosity to those in need and by regular prayer. That's what verse 2 tells us. It does not tell us that Cornelius is a follower of Jesus. And it does not suggest that God saw Cornelius as okay or sorted because of his giving and his praying. If his generosity and his prayer had made him all right in God's eyes, then there's no point to what happens in the rest of chapter 10. The rest of the chapter is about God sending Peter to Cornelius so he can hear about Jesus and be made right with God. So this centurion is not yet a member of God's people. But neither is he a person who's content with a little bit of religion. He's a sincere seeker. And he's about to find out that Jesus meant it when Jesus said the one who seeks for God and his truth, and his good gifts, that person will find what he's looking for. God doesn't tease anyone. He doesn't play around with people. If you genuinely want to know your creator, then your creator will give you what you want. He will reveal himself to you. Verse 3 says that one day at about 3 in the afternoon, that was a set time for prayer. So this is during Cornelius' daily prayer time. At 3 in the afternoon, he has a vision. An angel appears to him and says, verse 4, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. In other words, God has seen your sincerity and your searching. And he's responding to you. Then the angel says, send to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. And at this point we have to ask, why didn't the angel just tell Cornelius what he needed to know? Why didn't the angel share the good news about new life in Jesus? Why prolong and complicate the process by having Cornelius send for Peter? who's 30 miles away. Couldn't the angel have done it just as well and probably better than Peter? Well, the answer is that what's going on here is not just about God saving Cornelius and his friends and family. 
This is about God changing the perspective of the church. And as the most prominent leader in the church, Peter needs to be involved in this. God is not involving Peter because God can't do it without Peter. He's involving Peter so Peter can learn about the width of God's mercy. And as the men from Cornelius are on their way to find Peter, God begins to teach him. Look at verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Houses had flat roofs. And those roofs were treated really like an extra room. In the last scene, we saw Cornelius praying, and now Peter is doing the same. And again, as he's praying, God communicates with him. And that's how God generally works. He can stop us in our tracks as we're going about other business. He did that with Saul on the road to Damascus. He can do that, but as a general pattern, God communicates with those who discipline themselves to stop and give him their attention and listen to him. And as Peter prays, he's given this vision of a big sheet coming down from heaven filled with all kinds of animals. The thing we need to know here is that Old Testament law designated some animals as clean and some as unclean. You could eat the clean ones, but not the unclean. It's all set out in Leviticus. The description here in Acts 10 tells us the sheet contains a mixture of clean and unclean animals. And as Peter is faced with this mixture, he's given a command that he would have found shocking and disgusting. In verse 13, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter seems to see this as a test from God. Will he give in and eat stuff that he's not supposed to eat? And so Peter gives a very determined answer in verse 14. Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Peter is determined he's not going to give in to the temptation. He's not going to fail the test. But actually, God isn't giving him a test. He's giving Peter a command. Verse 15, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Mark's gospel tells us that before his crucifixion, Jesus had done away with the Old Testament food laws. But Mark also tells us the disciples didn't realize that until later. 
That's because rather than saying, forget the food laws, Jesus explained the purpose of those laws. Having a pure diet was an illustration of the need for a pure heart. So once Jesus came, the one who could give people pure hearts, those food laws became obsolete. They had served their purpose. So actually, Jesus has already shown Peter what the voice and the vision is telling him. God has made all foods clean. God has that right. He's God. He hasn't changed his mind. It's just that the food laws have served their temporary purpose. Their purpose was to teach about purity. And now Jesus has come to provide purity. So the message to Peter is get in step with God. Don't hold to your tradition in defiance of God. But Peter is resistant to the lesson. He's a stubborn man. You may remember that before Jesus was crucified, Peter denied three times that he even knew Jesus. And here verse 16 tells us Peter had to see this same vision three times before he's ready to learn the lesson. But he still doesn't know how God is going to apply this lesson to him. Verse 17. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the man sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the man, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The man replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the man into the house to be his guests. It turns out the vision of the animals in the sheet was not ultimately about telling Peter to loosen up and eat some pork. The vision was telling Peter that just as God can erase the distinction between clean and unclean food, so he can also erase the distinction between Jew and Gentile. The Jews regarded the Gentiles as unclean people. It was common for a Jewish man to pray a prayer every morning in which he thanked God that he wasn't a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That's not a biblical prayer, but it was a common prayer at that time. That's the pride and prejudice of Peter's background. But here God is teaching Peter that just as he can make unclean food clean, so he can make Gentiles part of his family. The real lesson Peter has to learn is about people, not meat. And verse 23 suggests he is beginning to learn the lesson. It would not have been normal to invite Gentiles to be guests in the same home as him. But Peter does. Verse 24. 
Peter's whole life is a testimony to God's patience with his people. Peter seldom learnt a lesson the first time it was taught to him. But God persists. He leads Peter slowly by small steps. He leads him to where he wants Peter to be in his thinking and his lifestyle. So don't get too impatient with that person you're trying to encourage along. Show them the same kind of patience that God shows Peter. And remember the patience and persistence God has shown to you in the past. Well, now Peter is ready. We know that Cornelius is ready. And in the next scene, God extends the boundaries of his new community. We'll pick up in the middle of verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Others have pointed out that Peter is not the smoothest evangelist. God serves him up a first-class opportunity to share the good news. Obviously, Cornelius is full of expectancy. He's packed the place out with his friends and his relatives. Peter arrives, he looks at them all and says, Well, I normally wouldn't associate with people like you, or even visit you, But God sent me here, so what do you want? If you've ever felt like an awkward evangelist, cheer up. God can use you anyway. But Peter has at least got the point of the vision. In verse 28 he says, God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. Thankfully, Cornelius and his friends aren't put off by Peter's manner. Cornelius fills Peter in on his side of the story so far. And he ends his little speech by saying in verse 33, Now, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil, 
because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We might have a question about the way Peter begins his talk here. Look again at verses 34 and 35. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men and women from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Our question might be, is Peter saying that all religious people are acceptable to God? Is he saying people are okay so long as they have a sense of reverence for God? So long as they make some effort to do what's right? Well, read by themselves, those verses could be taken that way. But they cannot be taken that way when we read the rest of Peter's speech. What Peter is saying is not that all religions are the same to God. He's saying all nations are the same to God. They all have the same access to God through Jesus Christ. Peter makes that clear in the very next verse, verse 36. He says, peace, meaning peace with God, comes through Jesus Christ. Cornelius has been seeking God, and God is honoring that. But seeking God isn't the end of the matter. There has to be a next step. Cornelius still needs to be reconciled to the God he's been seeking. And maybe you're here and you've been interested in God for a while. Maybe you've been checking things out for a while. And that's great. But don't get yourself stuck in that position. You need to take the next step of submitting to the truth that you've heard. If God thought Cornelius was fine as a seeker, he wouldn't have sent Peter to close the deal. This God-fearing Roman officer needs to bow before Jesus the King. That's what we find Peter aiming at in the rest of his talk. He gives a straightforward presentation of the good news about Jesus. It's the kind of presentation we've seen lots of times already in Acts. The key ingredients are, firstly, the facts about Jesus. His life, his death as a sacrifice for our sin, and his resurrection in victory over sin and death. The good news is never just what Jesus means to me or how Jesus makes me feel. The good news is a message about a real person who lived a real life and did real things. 
The second ingredient of the message is the truth about Jesus' position. Verse 42 says, He is the one God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. In other words, He has authority. He decides who goes to heaven and who will be separated from God in hell. And thirdly, Peter's message contains a challenge to respond, to believe in him, to believe in the facts about his life and the truth about his position, to believe in him and receive forgiveness of sins through his name. We haven't truly presented the good news until we've called men and women to make a response to it. As it turns out here, Peter doesn't get to finish his sermon. His sermon is interrupted by what has been called the Pentecost of the Gentile world. Look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. We said a few weeks ago that there's a pattern in the book of Acts. When a new people group receives the good news, God graciously gives them their own little version of the day of Pentecost. That was the day the Jewish believers received the Holy Spirit as a group. And we saw it too with the Samaritans in chapter 8. And now with the Gentiles. This seems to be God's gracious way of giving a double assurance. It assures the already existing believers that yes, God welcomes these other people as full members of his family. And this repeat of Pentecost also gives assurance to the new believers. It says to them, yes, God does welcome you. It really is true that he doesn't show favoritism to any one nation. It says to these people, if you come through Christ, you're in. You are truly and completely accepted into God's family. You're not second class or second tier. And clearly God has poured out the Spirit here because these Gentiles have responded in their hearts to the message. God doesn't need them to sign a response card or pray a prayer before he accepts them. He knows their hearts. And this time, Peter gets his response exactly right in verse 47. Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. In other words, God has already accepted these people. How could we refuse the sign of his acceptance? All the way through this, God has been leading 
And Peter has been following along behind. This was not Peter's bright idea. It's God who's extending the boundaries of his new community. But although Peter dragged his feet in the beginning, now he begins to live out the consequences of what God has done. He stays with these believers. He doesn't just nod his head to the idea that these people are family now. Peter lives it out by accepting their hospitality. And that's a challenge for us. Sometimes we find the idea of the family of God easier than the reality. It's important that we pray for and that we support Christians in faraway places. But I wonder sometimes if we find it a lot easier to support Christians in faraway places than we find it to love the brothers and sisters who are within touching distance. It's easy, really, to write a check every month for the church in Eastern Europe, for example. It's easy to have a photo on our fridge of a believer in Bolivia. But what about the awkward person in the row behind us? By all means, keep writing the checks. Keep the photos on your fridge. But let's also learn to love the family of God that God has thrown us together with. Well, Peter has got the message. The Gentiles are in the family. But God has more work for Peter to do. Now he needs to convince the church back in Jerusalem. In the first half of chapter 11, God's people get the message. But it takes some work for them to get the message. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. There's a close parallel here with something that happened to Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, we're told this. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? During Jesus' ministry, the religious people were the Pharisees. And the people they looked down on were the tax collectors, the people who fiddled the books to line their own pockets. People like that were below the respect of the Pharisees. They wouldn't mix with sinners like that. But look what's happened. Now the religious people 
are the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. The circumcised, as they're called in verse 2. And the sinners they don't want to mix with are the Gentiles. The uncircumcised. The church is young, but it's at a crossroads here. Are Christians going to become the new Pharisees? Or are they going to get in step with God? The fact is, we all come to God the same way. By facing up to our own sin and unworthiness. By asking God for mercy. And by receiving that mercy on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. But it's so easy for us to start feeling superior. It's so easy to start shaking our heads in disgust at those sinners who do this or live like that. And it's true, sin is disgusting. But your sin and mine is no less disgusting than whoever it is we're looking down on. If God poured out his mercy on us, can't we allow the same mercy for others? Jesus came for money grabbers like Levi. He came for pagans like Cornelius. People who don't have the right background or the right religious traditions. These believers in Jerusalem have no right to say to people like Cornelius, well, sort yourself out and then we'll welcome you. Learn to dress like us and talk like us and do things the way we do them. Then we'll eat with you. Then we'll make you feel part of the family. The Jerusalem believers had no right to take that attitude, and neither do we. We have no right to make people feel inferior before they come to Christ or afterwards. Now, obviously, we're all Gentiles. We don't need convincing that God's mercy is wide enough to include us. But there may well be areas where we do need to be stretched in our thinking. Jesus' offer of forgiveness and new life is for the alcoholic. It's for the homeless person, the traveler, the homosexual, the pedophile. It's for the member of the BNP and the terrorist. It's for the posh person. It's for the lazy person. It's for whoever you or I might feel inclined personally to turn away from. It's for whoever we might be repulsed by or looked down on. And when someone like that joins the family, they're not second-class family members. They're not men and women that, well, we'll share the church building with, but not our dinner table. No, when God has accepted someone fully, we must give them our full acceptance. Peter. 
Peter has been put on the spot by the church in Jerusalem. And he responds to the challenge by retelling all that happened with Cornelius. That's in verse 4 and following. We're going to pick up in verse 15. Peter says to them, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now, the rest of Acts will show us this is not the end of the matter. There are still practical details to be worked out. That's unavoidable when people from such varied backgrounds worship and minister together. But the message has hit home. The outlook and the future direction of the church has been changed here. The good news and life in the body of Christ is not just for the Jews. It's for all nations and all kinds of people. The church has got the message. The final words of verse 18 are significant. Repentance unto life means repentance that leads to life. But notice what comes before that phrase. Peter says, in fact the church says, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. In the Bible, repentance is presented as a gift from God. It's not something that we deserve praise for. It's God who shows us the ugliness of our sin and our desperate need of salvation. It's God who shows us that Jesus is the Savior we need. Don't misunderstand. The Bible is crystal clear that you and I have a responsibility to come to Jesus. We have no excuse to do nothing and say, well, I'm waiting for God to force me to come to Jesus. The Bible calls us to repent and believe, and we will be held responsible. We have to turn from our sin and trust Jesus. And when we do, the Bible tells us we have no reason to pat ourselves on the back. Because ultimately, we repented and found new life because God granted us repentance and new life. This passage of Scripture is about the amazing mercy of our sovereign God. When we were dead in our transgressions and sins, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It is by grace we have been saved. Really, the family of God is made up of just one kind of person. Guilty sinners who find mercy. Everything else isn't really that important. Not our background, 
not the life we've lived or the particular sins that we've committed. This passage is just as much about Christians recognizing the width of God's mercy as it is about Cornelius and his friends receiving that mercy. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. A table that shows us the cost of God's mercy. And as we prepare to celebrate this meal together, we're going to remember the great mercy that God has shown us. We're going to sing Mystery of Mysteries and then I Come by the Blood.